Welcome to Tales of Northern Michigan's Past. I'm your host, Christopher Struble, and joining us today as we continue to dig deep, literally, into the history of the Harbor Springs property at Pleasant View Road that once concealed a secret gambling and drinking establishment called the Club Manitou, and later became a beloved teen hotspot for live music called the Club Ponytail, is Taylor DeWicke, an independent documentarian from Harbor Springs, Michigan. So thanks for joining us today, Taylor. Thank you for having me. I have stated previously that the property house and establishment that represented the two distinct eras in American history. But last time we were talking, you guys made the case that the two eras really weren't that different. And there is some continuity or a common thread between the time of the gangsters and then later the teen bebobbers that hung out there. And as fascinating as the Prohibition era of the property is, so many locals still have memories of the days and nights spent at the dance club, mostly the nights. Nate told a story that his dad won the twist championship there at the club, funny tale, which mm-hmm. uh, since he's not here, we can talk about all of the Nate secrets too today. <laughs> but let's talk a little bit about some of the things that we found when we were walking the area and the property. I had seen some of these things and was aware of it, but the one that kind of caught my attention the second to the last time I was there was in the garage. There's a cement structure, maybe eight feet long by four by four. And then if you remove a piece of wood there, you look in, there's a conveyor belt that was used. I think it's pretty safe to say to move liquor from the garage where it was concealed as the trucks came in. And then that went down into the bar area of the old club Manitou and the LSSU Lake Superior State University's findings seem to indicate that that is exactly what we're looking at. They see mm-hmm. that tunnel going in there. When we looked into the first time, we found an empty champagne case in there. So again, I think this isn't yeah. uh, that far stretched of a, of a hypothesis. Other things that you have seen in the buildings uh, around there, what did you uncover that you, you know, on your own that you don't think you were aware of? Without going into too much detail, yeah, one of the interesting aspects of this property is obviously the Manitou in the basement, but in the kitchen, their you know commercial kitchen down there, doesn't look anything like a kitchen now. I know you're going with this, and I was hoping. Uh, yeah, there's an incinerator, and the incinerator in a kitchen at all doesn't quite make sense, but these were gangsters. And there was an article in the News Review, I think in the 70s or 80s, where they interview Gerhardt and they go, well, what the hell is the incinerator for? And he goes, well, you could burn, you could burn the layout to the club. Hell, you could burn pretty much anything in there. And of course, with our like, we're so interested in this property. We went and looked in the incinerator, and we pulled out some bottles. I don't know if I've told you this. We pulled out some bottles, and they're Prohibition era bottles from Canada. So these are the same booze bottles that the Purple Gang was you know, send, getting over the river from the Canadians and distributing to New York and to Chicago and, of course, to Michigan. And they were still intact, so clearly someone threw some junk in there and didn't. it was never burnt again. The incinerator was never used again. It's just wild to hold a piece of history like that in your hand. And on the bottles it says, like, federal law prohibits reuse or relabeling of this bottle, something to that effect. And you can tell that they included that on there because people, these these organized crime gangsters, they would get these bottles and they'd reuse them and they'd fill it up with their own hooch or whatever, their own booze, and they'd relabel it. And through my research of just trying to get historical context, what I've learned is these organized crime guys got really good at making counterfeit alcohol labels for their bottles. And in doing that, they could relabel it and sell it and distribute it again and not have to pay for new bottles. But 
on top of that, they got really good at counterfeiting stuff. And these guys were criminals, and they're like, "Oh, if we're counterfeiting labels, why don't we counterfeit money?" Uh, and this was kind of early on before the federal government started catching up on them. But Gerhardt himself, Al Gerhardt, was busted with counterfeit bills. And that's one of his like things he was booked on. Him and his right hand man were caught driving up north with about five. It was five thousand at the time, five thousand dollars in counterfeit money, and they were caught. Essentially, at that time when these organized crime, these mobsters were doing counterfeit bills, they needed a place to distribute the counterfeit money. And what they found in New York is that these counterfeit bills were all going through speakeasies. And the idea was people come in with real U.S. currency, cash. They, like, for example, the Manitou, you had to have equivalent of $1,500 to walk in the door of the Manitou. He wouldn't let you in without your 85 bucks, he said. So you had to have $1,500 in cash to even come in. So the idea is someone has, you know, $1,500, they go into the club, they get their chips, they play all night. If they've won any money or have any money left over, they cash out. And when they cash out, this is just my theory, but this was happening in New York. When they cash out, then they hand them over fake money. And the only way fake money gets caught is if you use it and someone notices it's a counterfeit. And they ask you, where'd you get it? Well, you're not going to tell them you got it breaking the law at a speakeasy. So it's kind of built in that the person would not rat on themselves. Yes, what a great way to triple, quadruple Mm -hmm. your money. I mean, no one's going to go back and complain. Well, honestly, this has happened several times. People have literally walked into a police station and to ask have the cocaine they just purchased tested because they think they got ripped off. Yeah, there is that <laughs> sort of, uh, not everyone's the smartest person in the world. <laughs> yeah. But in terms of... Uh, what a concept, though. Yeah. Well, there are, yeah. there. So in terms of the Manitou, it gives more intrigue to me uh, the fact that he put an incinerator in there. Because at the time, I don't know how long he was doing counterfeiting for. I just know he got busted in 35. But... These gangsters were getting away with their crimes because they were paying off local police everywhere. All these police officers were on the take or they were friends or whatever. But the federal government is a different story. So you see people like Al Capone getting arrested for tax-related fraud and not for all the horrible things he's done. So breaking federal law is a big no-no. So I don't know how long they were doing counterfeit money because that is a federal crime. But what better way to get rid of evidence of your federal crime than throwing all your counterfeit bills in an incinerator and firing it up? Well, and this is something you touched on before, too. The government was not, the federal government was not too happy with a couple of things. One of them was the money, uncontrolled money. That, mm-hmm. the, that, but they set this up. They gave, it, they gave it to the gangsters on a silver platter. The Volstead mm-hmm. Act, they set that up. And they really, they really in, in a way, the ponytail was a template, like we, we discussed, you brought this up, that the ponytail was a template for what's going to later, not the ponytail, but the Manitou. Yeah. What's going to happen in Vegas years later? Mm-hmm. So you go through Prohibition, which turns into the, the Al Capone days, and then you think of the movie The Godfather in the 40s and the 50s. I mean, what was the famous quote? We are larger than... U.S. Steel. I mean, that's how much money, and they, they, I think they say that in The Godfather. I think they say it right in the dialogue. Yeah, so. there's a character in there based off of Meyer Lansky, who's, so I can kind of dive into this story right now if you'd like. Yeah. So 
in terms of the organized crime in the U.S., there was a certain point where, uh, like, the five families were kind of organized in New York. Um, but there was a certain point across the board where all these organized crime syndicates realized they have a common enemy, and that's the United States government. Because, like, the real core goal was they wanted to make as much money as possible, and they don't want to pay their taxes, which who could blame them? But so these all these crime syndicates started actually kind of working with each other and kind of with the headquarters in New York, like the big dogs in New York. And each kind of racket had their own president or, like, CEO, so to speak. And kind of the head of the gambling operations out of the – they started calling themselves the National Crime Syndicate was Meyer Lansky, this guy named Meyer Lansky. And our friend Robert Knapp, who has recently passed away, unfortunately, he wrote a great book called, but it was about Meyer Lansky and Sam Garfield in Claire, Michigan, and their relationship. And I just learned the other week that the leader of the Purple Gang, Abe Bernstein, spent like the first 10 years of his life growing up in New York, where he was friends with Meyer Lansky as a as a boy, Meyer Lansky, he started off like anyone else. He was, you know, a rum runner, kind of car guy, and he and he rose through the ranks. And at a certain point, he was in charge of all the gambling operations, all the illegal gambling operations in the country. But these speakeasies, they all started like in retrofitted bars because, you know, overnight drinking was illegal. So they kind of had to be sneaky about it. But the Manitou. To me, it seems like the Manitou was this like a custom-built speakeasy from the ground up. So they were able to incorporate secret passageways and exit routes to the airport. And even the location itself was a choice. It's right in the perfect spot. You can go north. You can go west. You can go to You can go to Harbor. You can go. You can get away really easily. You can hop on a plane. You can drive down to the water, get on a boat. But it was this like concept where, you know, they poured equivalent of $18 million into in today's money into this place, and they built it in nine months. It was a quick turnaround, and they built it up. And what ended up happening is Meyer Lansky, this figure from New York, from the New York Crime Syndicate, he had all these kind of moral compass rules. One of them was you don't let the working class in. You only take the money from the rich people who can afford to lose it. What better place to try that concept out than here? We had all the rich we have resorters. The, we have the really wealthy resorters coming here for three months out of the year. They're here. They're gone. It's great. You have like a, a built-in audience here with a timeline. But what the, the crime syndicate ended up doing is once the federal government caught up and said, you know, gambling's illegal everywhere except Vegas and parts of little smaller parts of the country, these guys, Meyer Lansky, Bugsy Siegel, and all these guys, they started building resort casinos in Vegas. Now, these weren't just hotel casinos. They were resorts. They included golf courses. They evolved into including golf courses, pools, multiple restaurants. The idea is when the person walks on the property, every dollar they spend while they're here for a week will be on our property, and we'll scoop up all the money possible. And, of course, like in mafia fashion, they got greedy and they started skimming profits. They were under-reporting their profits and, you know, cashing out under the table millions of dollars. And the federal government caught up and booted them. And so Meyer Lansky packed up and moved on to Cuba, became best friends with President Batista. They were so close that that Batista was like, 
I want to turn Cuba into Monte Carlo, and I want you to run the gambling operations here, the casino industry. It's all in the Godfather too. Yeah, and so he's setting up Cuba's gambling industry, and it's just remarkable to like look back and see the Manitou as kind of this concept, like this blueprint, right? It is just a speakeasy casino, but it's in a resort town. So it's almost like they looked at it and they said, dang, look at these people walking off the property, spending their money elsewhere. At the end of the day, if you look at it from Slim, from Al Gerhardt's perspective, he wanted you to come in with that $1,500 and he wanted you to walk away with zero. Mm -hmm. I mean, who doesn't want that as a casino? But he can definitely guarantee that if he hands you fake money at the end of the night, you're walking away with nothing, you know? And so, win win. So, like, even then, you're like, there, this concept grew and grew. And it's like, it's a testament to like these mafia people as businessmen, not criminals. Yes, they were criminals because what they were doing was deemed illegal by the government. Gambling was deemed illegal. It's naughty. It's no good. And drinking's illegal, it's naughty, it's no good. But that was the moral compass of the government at the time. Now, gambling's legal, booze is legal, sports betting is legal. I mean, the Purple Gang was making a lot of money in sports betting alone. Now, sports betting is advertised to you every day through an app or a website. You hear it all the time. So it was really just like the mafia versus the government at a certain point. You hear about mafia like groups killing each other. But at a certain point, they kind of grew up and realized, you know, we're an industry here. Like, like I said, Myron Lansky always said, we're bigger than U.S. Steel. They were. And when the government sees that, they want their cut. I mean, the biggest racket of all is like taxes, right? They want their cut from everything, every little thing you do. A lot of the Vegas, all these casinos were all influenced by these men because they built them. And they started somewhere. And the Manitou is an example of where they started from. Well, that's what I was going to say. You know, this experiment here in northern Michigan combined with the government implementing the Volstead Act, I think it basically uh, created a way for organized crime to become very wealthy and powerful and basically led to crime dynasties that continue to this day. Mm-hmm. I won't say the Kennedy family by any name, but, but it's just, <laughs> the, but this money is still here. These billions of dollars that were the equivalent of billions of dollars still is in, in our in our. Yeah, it's just, it's an industry that was learning to be, they were learning how to regulate this industry. Is essentially what was happening at that time. Because I think we can all agree, gambling isn't good or bad. People have addiction issues with gambling, with drinking, of course, but to make it completely illegal, it would be foolish. It's just like prohibition. You make it completely illegal, then there's no regulation. And you have these speakeasies and you have like real bad crime happening over distribution of alcohol. Like, when you sit down and actually look at it, men and women, I'm sure, have died over these industries of the these mafias. Like people were murdered because they got in the way of people making their profits. Yeah, you know? absolutely. It was it was cost of doing business. Yeah, if you didn't pay into this national crime syndicate tax or like be friendly with them, you end up getting whacked. And I mean, it happened. It didn't happen here in Harbor, but there is a gentleman that owned the Ramona Park Casino that went to Detroit for a baseball game and never came back. He died. He got whacked. Well, would we have the, what's the, who's the most famous Michigan guy to disappear? Yeah, Hoffa. <laughs> yeah, I better be careful on this property. You don't want to uncover. <laughs> well, I want to say, too, northern Michigan that we know of, I mean, uh, in uh, Manhattan, the, the bodies aren't buried in Manhattan. They're buried in Jersey. Mm. That's one thing I've always thought about the club up here, too. And, of course, Dillinger and Capone and those guys using northern Wisconsin. 
Northern yeah. Michigan was a, was a haven to hide out. It really was yeah. a place to, to, to come up and, and to kind of disappear, get off the grid too. So what a better place to, cause they've done excavation looking for Hoffa in our area up here before. I didn't know that. Just north of Harbor Springs. And it, within the last eight years, seven, eight years, they well, were exploring out there again. There's like a pond out there. Mm-hmm. I can, I, I'll find it. It was, it was, it's not that long ago. They can't be found again on the, on the internet. Because we know the internet doesn't lie. But Yeah, uh, definitely not. <laughs> no, but they've pretty much exhausted every place they can think of. In Michigan, you know, they, he's under I'll let you know if we and, find Hoffa. I doubt it. <laughs> I think at this point it's a, yeah. it's a long lost stuff. You know, one thing you said the last time we had a discussion, too, is, and this one really hit me, too, each of the incarnations of the clubs that occupied that property out there, the Club Ponytail and the Club Manitou, they could have only have happened, it could have only have happened in their time. Mm, yeah. That is something that I've just learned recently of just reading the books, reading the writings from Rick, and just being on the property. You know, it's not like it's the perfect location for a steakhouse, you know? But it was the perfect location for a speak. And it was the perfect location at the time in the 60s for a teen nightclub. One of the great aspects of the story is at that point, these bands were up and coming, right? And that's why they came up here and these kids saw them. But the reality of the situation is that sort of venue could exist at that time because they were using it as this way of appealing to kids that are all from all different parts of the country. It's not just local kids that are going to Harbor Springs High School, Petoskey High School. It's kids that come from Chicago, Detroit, who knows where. But also at the end of the 60s, 1969 was the first Woodstock. And they realized, I think, like both the musical artists and probably their labels realized the value of big festivals. I mean, that's like the ponytail times 25. You know, there's so many more people at a Woodstock than at a small venue like the ponytail. And those kids come from all over too. And it's just like artists now doing shows at colleges that, you know, you got a huge audience built in. So it really could just exist at that time. Another thing that Mark Huck talks about in his book is the style of popular music shifted from, you think about the bands that played there, like the Turtles, like their most famous song is So Happy Together. You know, it's these lovey-dovey, like rock, like kind of rock and roll songs, yes, but very lovey-dovey talking about girls, shift to the 70s that are all anti-Vietnam, anti-war music, real, you know music more than I do. And this, parents already didn't love the ponytail at the time. They were like, oh, our kids are going to They didn't to like Bobby Vinton. <laughs> really? <laughs> they, they didn't like when Bobby Vinton came up. So you think that the last act, Sly and the Family Stone, got any better reception yeah. from the parents of the conservative area up here in our first I know. <laughs> I, I mean, it's it made sense at the time for them not to love a rock and roll club for their kids. But at least you knew where your kids were. What a cool thing to have. Yeah, you knew where they were, and you knew that, I mean, the Douglases, from everything I've read and heard, it's like they really wanted no alcohol and even banned cigarettes at a certain point. Like their goal was like a safe spot for the kids, and they they walled them in and put barbed wire around it. Like these kids, when they're on the property, they were there. Who knows what went on in the parking lot, but um, it's just... Very interesting. It could happen at that time that music was so lovely and it was rock and roll, but it wasn't like anti-war yet. No. Once that happened, it was like, oh boy. Now looking at the ponytail, could it be a venue for major pop acts now? No, it's too small, of course. Maybe up and coming acts, but like we both know, there's a lot of work to do on the property and you got to think of the time we're in now. What would work there now? Like what would be profitable? 
And the other thing, to be frank, is I've never looked at their books. Like, were they profitable as the ponytail? Well, we don't. That's that's something we don't know. Don't Even know. back then, when that was the thing to, to I know Gerhardt was 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 well, a sure. <laughs> but we can't do uh, counterfeiting again. Yeah, because you just had to think how much did they pay the acts to be there and how much was tickets. You know? Well, that's just it. It was a different, like you said, it was a different concept. The whole idea of a live performance was to inspire kids to go out and spend their their allowance money on records. That's that's how mm. rock and roll first. So record companies made the money, and then those small clubs became festivals. And, yeah. and like Woodstock, you know, hundreds of thousands of people. Now, did they even break even? Like those bands got paid hardly nothing mm-hmm. at Woodstock, so it was a conceptual thing. But all of a sudden, that became stadium rock. Yeah, so bands like Crosby, Stills, and Nash and Young, they were like one of the first to just, I mean, they got, they found out how enormously wealthy they could become. They could control the, 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 the revenue, the money that wasn't all being absorbed by the, by the record companies. So, yeah, um, I think the writing was on the wall for the ponytail in 69 when the fire hits. In the winter, I, I just um, like they didn't reopen. They were underinsured, but I don't think that they thought that the the template, the monetary template, was something there. Something wasn't something wasn't there that was worth the squeeze anymore. Mm-hmm. I would assume because you can see in the letter that the kids wrote in the paper to the Douglases, like how beloved the ponytail was. And what I've learned from even just doing this project, and what we all know is this community is a really supportive community. And I'm sure if they needed someone to help build, rebuild the ponytail, a bunch of kids would show up, you know? At least they have two hands to lift and move stuff, you know? But something, they, they the Douglases at the time had just opened the Golden Horseshoe. They had a whole nother business to put their efforts towards. So, you know, the ponytail, that chapter closed. It's sad, but what can you do? It's it burned to the ground. <laughs> like, what can you do? The rumor is that they were underinsured and just financially the money the money mm-hmm. wasn't there. They got a little disillusioned with the, the Golden Horseshoe and these are about the same era, right? It was just a year apart. What's interesting finally... about the Golden Horseshoe from what I learned from Brick is it was almost like they looked at the speakeasies in New York and what was working for the adults that attend the speakeasies in New York and tried it at the Golden Horseshoe. You know, they had adult entertainment, like Lottie the Body. They had strippers. Lottie the Body. Yeah. They had strippers essentially there and booze, you know, it was the polar opposite of the ponytail. And they really, they put all their eggs in that basket. But it's a shame the ponytail is such a, it's, there are probably children alive this day, people alive this day that wouldn't be had the ponytail not been around, you know? Like, you hear stories from tons of people. I met my wife there. I met my husband there. I mean, it's true. It it may just be a physical location to some, maybe a cool place with tunnels and hidden secrets, maybe gangster gold, but the real value of it is like these relationships that have come out of a singular piece of property in Harbor Springs. It's a really special place, but I mean, if it weren't for Al Gerhardt and the Douglases and the Landises, it would just be a piece of property. The Landises need a lot of kudos and credit here because they preserved and saved the, the property. They didn't do anything to the basement. They, I mean, they closed it off for their for good reasons. For yeah, they safety. closed it off and and tried. But they to, didn't. They didn't tear anything down. It's no, all, it's you're stepping back in time, and there's you can't ask for a better steward of that land. Had Gerhardt not built there, had none of this happened, I wouldn't be talking to you to this day. This story is so rich, and the fact that they picked Harbor Springs in this area isn't surprising. I mean, there's so many wealthy people that come here and so many people that grew up here and want to stay here because it's beautiful. 
and there's everything here. You got the lake and you got skiing and you got all like all this beautiful nature up here and you're just just far enough away from all the hustle and bustle of a big city, right? We're in the big city right now, it's Petoskey. It's not that it's not a city city, you know? It's still very small. But it's not surprising to me that gangsters gangsters need to go on vacation too. You know? Well, exactly. If you can mix work with business, yeah, that's kind of like where I think they were coming from. Is they probably came here on vacation, like Abe Bernstein. I've heard you know spent summers in Petoskey, and you might know this more than I do. But I was just talking to an author. She was saying that Abe stayed in a hotel across from the Perry. I guess there was another hotel. Over yeah, there's there. like four right there yeah. in real close proximity. And that's, that makes makes sense. They came up on vacation, and then think of uh, the movie um, Donnie Brasco. Mm-hmm. They go to Florida, like we're we're going to put a club in Florida. That's yeah, that's Meyer Lansky's story. Right that there. that's yeah. it. You're, we're we're going to we're going to Florida. So yeah, you go on vacation, and you see the the resources that are here. Yeah, look how the look how the contractors that come up here. I know, and, and so they're just like they. I think the the core goal of all of these mafia and crime syndicates are they are all immigrants to this country, and they're all like doing the pull yourself up by the bootstrap sort of mentality, but they're not wealthy people by birth. They weren't. And so their main goal is to acquire wealth. And the the best way to do that is avoid the government paying their taxes and don't leave money on the table if there's money to be made. So my belief is that, you know, Abe came up here for vacation, saw the, the clientele he could work with up here and decided not to leave money on the table. And there's, you know, thousands of speakeasies and blind pigs in Detroit. And there were, there were bl- speakeasies and blind pigs up here too. But what people have to understand about the Manitou, and what I didn't understand as a kid is I always thought the whole motivation was to drink booze. Booze is illegal. We still want to drink booze. But the bread and butter was the casino. And that's what Al cared about. That's why Al opened a new casino in West Virginia. That's what Abe spent the later part of his life doing was gambling operations and investing in casinos with Meyer Lansky. And Meyer Lansky's whole career was building up the casino industry. So this is really a story of just like a prototype of a casino. Uh, It's a really small building. It's not a big hotel casino. It is just a speakeasy casino with a restaurant as a cover. But they were probably making a lot of money going through there to the point where they moved out over to Vegas. Myers crew went to Vegas and built what it is today. Like it wouldn't be there if it weren't for what these organized crime men have learned in operating smaller and smaller things. So it's like one step on the ladder to the industry we know today. And it's just, we understand this because we've talked about this story a lot, but it's just wild to me as a kid to understand that these gangsters and stories you see in Hollywood actually happened in our little town of Harbor Springs. Well, that's the fascinating part. I mean, like when you're, you, you think, I, I really think that that is the best preserved speakeasy that's really a real speakeasy. A real speakeasy that, yeah. that has not been converted, modified. I don't. I don't know of other ones. I mean, like in Chicago, you have got this one that's been, you know, ten different things since then. Yeah. They try to retro. Yeah, and, and I'll be the first to say I don't know everything about this whole, the whole casino speakeasy organized crime racket of the United States, but I don't know of a lot of speakeasies that are custom built. I definitely have seen a lot that 
retrofitted. It was already, I mean, this whole industry was axed overnight, the whole alcohol industry, right? It was axed overnight. Now you have all these bars with no real, nothing to sell. And so they were, you know, retrofitted into speakeasies, you know? But this was a concept built from the ground up. And that's something you really, truly understand when you're on the property. Before I'd been on the property, I always imagined these tunnels as like they were digging underground and, and burrowing and making tunnels. But in reality, they excavated it all out and poured concrete from the you ground You know, that, up. That's, a, that's a major point right there because Rick thought, you know, again, uh, and, and other people have evaluated the property and thought that'd be so much labor. Not really if you're doing a beginning. No, if you basement. do the tunnels, but you're digging holes, you're digging mm-hmm. trenches. Trench is pretty easy to dig with mm-hmm. an excavating you know, uh, team. It makes more sense when you actually see it. You, you know? think about that. Think about backwards tunnels, then the cottage. The la- cottage was the last thing built. Yeah. And it's <laughs> and the cottage is a great, like it looks just like a Bayview cottage or like a Yeah, it's so nice, the woodwork in yeah, there. Yeah, it is a beautiful cottage. And if you were to walk on that property um, and not know about the entrance to the basement, you would just think it's a cottage. And that was the whole purpose i would assume is that to, was it you know but yeah it's it's fascinating how can people contact you mm-hmm. um share their stories help support the project what what's the best way to get in touch with with, with you on uh the best way to get in contact with me is on my website it's taylorduicky.com t-a-y-l-o-r-d-u-e-w-e-k-e you can also Reach out to me directly about the film on the project page. It's on at taylordewicky.com slash ponytails, spelled P-O-N-Y dash T-A-L-E-S. I'm happy to give out my phone number, too, if that's okay. I want your phone number. Yeah, so please do call me. I love a cold call. Call me, tell me a one-sentence-long story. Tell me an hour-long story. I'll, I'll pick up the phone. If not, leave a message. My number is 231-838-4739. And we'll share the information through our Facebook page, too. Karen will put that up on our Facebook page. I would like as many stories from people as possible because that is the beauty. Good stories about characters and about people. If I just did a story on the physical property, it wouldn't be that interesting. Well, here's a tunnel. Here's an incinerator. And I don't fill in that with you know, the human element, the human element is what attracted me to the story to begin with. Hearing from Ward about the most magical nights of his childhood life at listening to the animals in Harbor Springs, I was, that blows me away. And I think my favorite part of the property, to be honest, is the, the men and women's bathroom and the man. Me too. The, the graffiti the, the hasn't graffiti. changed in a hundred years, man. It's amazing. It's like these teenagers at the time, the Manitou was over and it was the ponytail in the other building, but yeah. these kids would go down, the popular kids would hang out in the basement and get up to no good and sneak around in tunnels, but they all wrote graffiti in the bathroom that is just timeless. It's, it's absolutely timeless. And I showed you a picture. But I called every phone number I could find on there too. Really? <laughs> There, uh, there is one name on the wall that I did show there you. There is, and I'm... It's the rabbit hole I'm going down. There's a name on the wall. I thought a kid wrote it, but it very well could be the person themselves. It says Janice Joplin. And she was touring in Michigan in 68 and 69, and the ponytail is still standing. And there's some time. lost time there, right? She's in Ann Arbor, right? Mm-hmm. Is, is that... She's in Ann Arbor and in, in Ohio. I'm not... I've been reaching out to her museums and to... 
her family, to be honest. <laughs> I've sent some cold emails. I haven't heard back yet, but I was doing more research trying to match signatures, and boy, her signature varies all the time all over the place. Rick so, sent me a bunch of different copies of it, too, but yeah. my point would be she wasn't that famous at that time. Mm-hmm. Who would have seen any of the versions of her of her? Oh uh, yeah, autograph. And who's who's faking it? And, faking so, an I mean, autograph. Is yeah. it, could it be faked? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. But the t- the chronology, the chronological uh, events that lead up to it, and the timing don't make sense. Somebody's out forging Elvis. Yeah, yeah, that, that makes sense. You know, yeah, you're right. Elvis was point. here. But Janis Joplin, man, it's like no, not at that time. I don't yeah. know. I don't see the benefit or, or the. I could see it. Just I, I actually watched a documentary. I've been doing research on her too, and. I could totally see her just being a patron, being up here. That's what I'm thinking. I mean, we didn't hear of her performing there, but who knows, like, if she came through. I mean, she was a 20-year-old girl at the time, like 26 or 7. You know, she was still looked like a, you know, like the clientele that was there. kind of footloose. Yeah. In terms of that basement of the Manitou and the ponytail, like, I've heard stories of only the popular, the cool kids would be in the basement. I think Janis Joplin's a pretty cool kid. She would find her way in. She would probably fall into that category. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, people can always contact, uh, I'm sure Nate wouldn't mind yeah, call no, it uh, Grand sure. Real Estate. Mm-hmm. And especially if you're feeling philanthropic and want to uh, contribute and yeah. preserve the history for, of this great property. In all honesty, like, if you want to buy it, you know who to call. Call Grand Real Estate. They'll take you through. It's just, it's a wonderful piece of history, and we ought to preserve it in the best way we can. And the best way I can is through film, so... Please help me. That that's one thing I just want to be clear is like you can't do this film without the community. I can't sit here and tell all these stories because I don't have them. They have them. <laughs> the community has them. The people that have been there have, have Well, from my experience, people love sharing their stories about the club ponytail. Well, thank you, uh, Taylor, for joining us. And thanks to all the guests this year. We've really had a great year, in my opinion. Uh, uh, Frederick Stonehouse is just, I don't want to leave anybody unmentioned, but I had some kind of dream guest on this year. And thank you to all the lo- local Michigan historians that have generously shared their pictures, research, and documents with me over the years. Meryl Hankey, Carla Buckmaster, Mary Jane Dorr, a Bayview historian who's been on our show before, Carl Crawford at the Greenwood Cemetery. If you haven't checked out their website, that's located here in Petoskey, but he's put together an amazing website loaded with newspapers and historical articles going back all the way to the, to the 1870s, uh, detailing our region's rich and diverse history. There are no synonyms for those two words I think that go together so well and tell our story here in northern Michigan and then also to my mentor uh, Rick Wiles who we mentioned several times Rick's generous with all of his history and research and shares it with the, in, the, in the public domain and I'm just a student of history without all of these people's contributions this podcast would not be possible and also big uh, Mike at Scooby's uh, our most loyal listener and fellow historian if you get a chance you stop in Mike's a tall guy, bald like me, not that you can see I have a face for radio. He's a great historian and uh, always loves to share uh, stories that he has about the area. In the meantime, I'm your host, Christopher Struble, and make sure and watch for a new season beginning March of next year of Tales of Northern Michigan's Past. Happy holidays. Happy holidays.